So 2013 started on an upbeat note for me. We were in Iowa City. Our youngest child was approaching a year old. Things seemed like they were coming together for the next big move in my vocation and in our family life, a move we'd been preparing for for several years. You see, it had been years before that I had sensed that perhaps God was inviting me to someday move to Berkeley, California, start a community of faith. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm here. A spiritual community that would make space for folks who might not otherwise feel safe or at home in a church to connect with one another and with God. And that journey had led me to seminary. It led me to my mentor, A.D. Wasink, which then led Jason and I to uproot our family moved to Iowa City so I could be trained by her while I finished taking classes and having babies. And then in early 2013, Jason and I sensed that that season of preparation was drawing to a close. Plans were coming together. We thought we were about a year out from where we would try to make the challenging leap from Iowa to the Bay Area. So on one particularly encouraging day, I found myself face to face with the head of church planting, for our entire denomination. And he told me that after looking through all the significant assessments I had participated in to determine my fitness to try to start a spiritual community, uh, the organization of churches was very excited to support my Berkeley church plant. My scores on all the tests, he said, were off the charts. Uh, though church planting is always a very risky business with the vast majority of startups failing in the first year or two, from what they could tell, I had what it would take in terms of skill sets, personality, gift mix, sense of call, uh, to be an effective founding pastor. And so they were not only happy to sign off on supporting my project, they wanted to use it as a model for how this denomination could support female senior pastors, because I would be one of the first in their denomination to start a church as a woman whose spouse was not uh, also in ministry. Now, this wasn't the only cause for excitement in that, in that season. Uh, I was also being given in that season other invitations to a lot of influence in this larger organization. I was asked to serve on their national task force for cultivating women in leadership. The denomination's record label was having conversations with me about recording and releasing my songs. It was just a season that felt really, really pregnant with all kinds of exciting and hopeful possibilities. And then, in a matter of weeks, everything shifted. The system of churches started having open conversations around sexuality and gender identity, and specifically how to approach our LGBTQ community members. And it was a tense set of conversations that made it clear that in our system of churches, there was a lot of anxiety around these issues. It also became clear that all the blessing and opportunity I'd hoped to claim as part of this church community was contingent on my agreement with their exclusionary policies, policies which ran counter to my own clear convictions. So just weeks after being told by this national leader that I would be a model for other female church planters in our movement, I found myself face to face with the same man again. And this time, I could read in his eyes that his regard for me was completely different. As we sat down together, I had a 
like a momentary vision. It was like an out-of-body experience. Like I was looking down at myself and this man in our metal folding chairs from the ceiling. And as I watched him talk to me, it was as if God was whispering, take note, Leah, this is a really important moment. This is the moment you're getting kicked out of this community. He may not say those words, but that's what's happening right now. And it was. I start by sharing that story because this is the beginning of Holy Week. It's a sacred time for many followers of Jesus as we consider the last week of Jesus's life. And that was a big week in much more dramatic fashion than the quick turn of events that I just described. In those last days, a lot changed very quickly for Jesus. On this Sunday before Easter, what the church has traditionally called Palm Sunday, the gospel writers describe... The gospel writers describe what's often called the triumphal entry. Jesus entering the capital city of Jerusalem on a donkey, welcomed by throngs of people waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna, celebrating him like an arriving king. And then five days later, these same throngs would be calling for his execution. So how are we to understand such a dizzying set of events? Well, throughout the last several weeks, we've been exploring the work of 20th century academic Rene Girard and his perspective on human behavior. We've talked about his theory of mimetic rivalry and scapegoating, how humans mimic one another's desires, anxieties, and frustrations, and eventually, as a group, they place all the stress and anger in the community on an innocent other or minority group. Inevitably, the group ends up accusing this individual or minority group of some taboo crime and then subjecting them to violence to secure a fragile kind of group peace. In our series, Old Stories, New Lenses, we've looked at how these behaviors play out throughout the stories of the Bible. We've looked at the unveiling of this scapegoating mechanism at work in the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, but it all becomes more explicit in the life of Jesus. So two weeks ago, we saw Jesus seeming to identify and confront this mechanism at play when he turns the spotlight on a scapegoating mob going after a poor woman. But the story of Jesus isn't just that he defended the scapegoat. The story of Holy Week is that Jesus, the embodiment of the divine, God's own self, became the scapegoat. You could say that all the factors in Rene Girard's model were lined up for this to happen. Jesus was born into an anxious system, was rife with tensions and rivalries as the Israelites struggled for autonomy under Roman occupation. And a number of sects within Judaism were rivalrous with one another. There was the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all struggling for some sort of control. 
And in the midst of all this tension and rivalry, the system needed an outlet for its stress. Jesus of Nazareth fit the criteria perfectly for a scapegoat. He was easy to other. Jesus was from Galilee. He was a country boy in a culture that had more respect for those cosmopolitan people in Jerusalem. His parentage was questionable. There were rumors that the man who raised him wasn't his biological father. He was an unmarried man, which made his sexuality and gender expression suspicious. He drew to himself working class folks, tradespeople, fishermen, tax collectors, other unseemly sorts. And yet with all of that, he was also uniquely charismatic, powerful, teaching with authority, performing signs and wonders no one else could do. And so if Gerard's theory of how this whole scapegoating thing works, it was completely predictable that through much of his ministry, Jesus's life would be under threat. He seemed to recognize he was a man with a mark on his back. Perhaps that's why he often told the people he healed to keep it a secret. He knew the quicker the news spread, the more mimetic rivalry it provoked, the quicker his story would be over. So today, in this last kind of ex teaching in our exploration of Gerard, we're gonna focus on a few different incidents that show this scapegoating mechanism playing out in Jesus's final days. See what insights we might draw about how scapegoating works and what it means. In this first one, Jesus has recently been hiding out after running from a mob that was trying to stone him. He's been trying to stay away from Jerusalem, where most of the leaders in rivalry with him can be found. But his friend Lazarus has died. And after staying away as long as he can, Jesus returns to the area and calls his friend days after his death out of the grave. It's his most mind-bending miracle to date. And here's what follows not long after in John 11. Then many of the people who'd come with Mary, which is Lazarus's sister, and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called the council together and said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on in this way, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our sanctuary and our nation. And then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. So here we have it, clear as day. There's a cold calculus behind this act of violence. These various religious leaders, once rivals, but now working together, feel the threat to their status quo. If Jesus raises up a real movement, they think it could be a revolution. 
The Romans will never abide it. They'll take away the power that these folks have in the system, the, the limited power they have, and they may crush us all. Better that he die, they think. One man for the nation. This brings us to my first observation from our stories this week, and that is this. Scapegoating is rooted in the lie that peace can be preserved if another pays the price. Scapegoating is rooted in the lie that peace can be preserved if another pays the price. We may live in a different era, in a different cultural crisis, but the cold calculation of those clinging to wealth and power, that is sadly with us still, right? In recent weeks, this kind of logic has been used to push back against the strong social distancing measures necessary to save millions of human lives. At times, politicians and media personalities have even suggested that it would be better to let the vulnerable perish rather than sacrifice our economy. Grandparents should be willing to sacrifice themselves for the economic freedom of their grandkids, these leaders say. Many who make these pronouncements also claim to be people of faith, but this story makes something clear. This is not the logic of the divine. God does not call for this kind of sacrifice. This is purely the work of a diabolical, mimetic, scapegoating force. It is pure evil from what the Bible personifies as the Satan, a word that means literally the accuser. The promise of peace doesn't come from God, but from the one who incites a spirit of accusation and the cruel logic that those accusations can inspire. And the logic is actually a lie. Scapegoating doesn't make groups safe or peaceful. It makes them more dangerous. Targeting another to release our tension only creates a vicious cycle. Another scapegoat will always be needed by a group that tries to find their peace through violence. I wonder if any of you have seen that kind of dynamic at play where a community has tried to secure peace by expecting some other or others to pay a price. Maybe we could just take a moment. If you have an idea of where you've seen that, feel free to share it in the chat window. You could also speak it out if you want. You could raise your hand and we'll call on you. Middle school, yeah, for sure. Okay, any others? All right. Yes, when AIDS hit, mm-hmm, 100%. 
So by the time I found myself face to face with that denominational leader, I in some way was prepared for what was happening as devastating to me as it was. I've been prepared, I think, through this series of intimate exchanges I felt like I had with Jesus that week through the connection with the divine I call the Holy Spirit. The first happened a few days earlier as my friend Adie and I were coming in for a landing. We were arriving for this national conference that we were to attend where everything went down. And as I looked out the window, I felt this eerie calm and like a divine closeness as well as like a heaviness sink onto my spirit. And these words rung out in my head as if Jesus himself was speaking them to me. It was in my rejection that I had victory. It was in my rejection that I had victory. Now, I'd never heard of Rene Girard at that time. I didn't know anything about scapegoat theory, but I understood at some profound level, I think what the divine was speaking to me, that Jesus wasn't ultimately one with God because he was celebrated by his fellow humans. For him, rejection, by them meant that he had actually like passed a test of character. He not allowed the mimetic nature to sweep him up in it. He had never pointed a finger of condemnation at another human being. He hadn't bought into the lie of scapegoating. So if rejection meant that he had resisted the pull of the accuser throughout his life, then that was a victory. And if I could do the same thing, I too might claim that as some sort of victory in what others might call a foolish rejection. So the plot against Jesus is set, even days before Jesus rolls into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And on that Palm Sunday, the crowds that welcome Jesus, they are part of this anxious system. In a metaphor that feels probably too resonant for us right now, Gerard actually called the mimetic spirit at work in a crowd of people a mimetic contagion. Sentiment is contagious, he believed, particularly negative scapegoating sentiment. It stokes our underlying anxieties, our insecurities, our resentments and fears, and we find ourselves quickly swept up in a dangerous outbreak of anger and hatred as the scapegoating lie spreads like this invisible virus. While thousands may have celebrated Jesus on Sunday, by Friday, that virus has infected them, and the fickle crowd has turned. And this brings me to the second moment I want to draw our attention to this morning. It, it might not be a surprise that all of these groups that were in rivalry pre previously with one another, but now they're united because they're rivalrous with Jesus. 
that they're all brought together in targeting him. That makes sense. But as things play out, even Jesus' closest followers and friends find themselves infected by mimetic contagion. Let's look at what happens in John 18. Simon Peter and another disciple followed them as they brought Jesus to Annas, who is Caiaphas's uh, father-in-law, also a, a high priest. Now the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Simon Peter was left standing outside by the door. So the other disciple who was acquainted with the high priest came out and spoke to the slave girl who watched the door and brought Peter inside. This of course is when Jesus has been arrested and taken to the high priest. So the girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? He replied, I am not. Now the slaves and the guards were standing around a charcoal fire they had made, warming themselves because it was cold, and Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And skipping ahead a bit, they said to him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? Peter denied it, I am not. And one of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I not see you in the court orchard with him? Then Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. It was only hours before that Jesus had predicted this would happen. Peter was arguably Jesus' closest, most loyal disciple. And yet that night, Jesus told him to his face that before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. And though Peter swore up and down to Jesus, this could never be true. It would never happen. In the heat of the scapegoating moment, things played out exactly as Jesus had predicted. And that brings me to my second observation from these stories. Scapegoating can pull even allies into its orbit. Scapegoating can pull even allies into its orbit. Peter's denial is a cautionary tale for all of us with some privilege who think of ourselves as allies of folks who might be targeted as scapegoats in any scenario. It's one thing for us to recognize what's happening, see that it's wrong. It's another thing for us to put our own safety and security on the line to stand in solidarity with those who are being unfairly targeted. When we're scapegoated, the hurt of a would-be ally remaining quiet that creates a particular kind of injury. In those painful moments, we find that those who we thought were safe, those who we believed loved us, care for us, they let us down by being unable or unwilling to speak out on our behalf. It's painful enough to be unfairly targeted by someone in power who doesn't really know you. 
But when those who are supposed to have your back stand by, watch it happen, that stings all the more, right? Anyone feel comfortable naming a way they've seen that dynamic play out? Feel free to put it in the chat. We'll take a pause for a moment. Yeah. Feel free if you if something comes to mind at any point as we go forward to, to throw it up in the chat and I might not uh, see it now, but I'll check in with it later. And you all can be checking in with each other that way. The second divine moment I had that week at the national conference came in the form of a vision in my mind's eye. It was Jesus walking that road to Calvary. And as he made the lonely march with the cross on his back, hearing the crowd that lined the roads chanting, crucify, crucify. He was looking each member in, of the crowd in the eyes. And it was as if I could hear the thoughts in his head. I had dinner with you last week, he thought of one. I healed your daughter a month ago. I celebrated your child's birth. I blessed you. I, I spoke to you. I prayed for you. Every single person there who was calling for his execution, these were the people he had loved and done ministry with for years. The same folks he had celebrated with just days before as he entered Jerusalem. Understanding the depth of that intimate betrayal in a way I don't think I'd ever really considered. That brought me a strange kind of comfort as I saw one after another of the folks in my own community say they were with me, that they saw how I was being unfairly treated. But when those in power were present, they quietly looked the other way. Scapegoating can pull even allies into its orbit. So scapegoating is founded on a lie. The lie spreads to even those who would be allies. But as the scapegoating mechanism rolls on, putting Jesus unjustly on a cross, we hear from his own mouth the words that also reveal a third important truth of how this whole thing works. And that comes to us from Luke's account. So when they came to the palace, the place, when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. 
But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. With total compassion and wisdom, Jesus understands what's happening. He's not saying, forgive them for being diabolical murderers. He recognizes that ultimately the people who are complicit in taking him down don't really understand what accuser they are listening to. He understands this third point I want to make. Scapegoating is most effective when it's hidden. Scapegoating is most effective when it's hidden. This is the insidious power of scapegoating. It masquerades as justice. It convinces those in its midst that they are doing the right thing, the just thing, maybe the sacred thing. They are doing what's needed to care for the community, to protect the people, to show faithfulness to God. Just hours after I'd seen that picture of Jesus walking the road to Calvary, recognizing he was being crucified by his friends and loved ones, I saw one final picture, and it was this, Jesus on the cross, praying for those very same people who had just betrayed him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I understood that in the same way that the truth of what they were doing was hidden to so many of Jesus's accusers, something hidden was operating in my circumstances too. So those words, they don't know what they're doing, wrong in my head and in my heart. When I found myself there in those metal folding chairs in that conference lobby, looking in the eyes of someone in power over me who had decided I needed to either join his mob or become a scapegoat myself. At first he tried to convince me I was wrong, mansplainingly trying to persuade me. I simply didn't understand the issues around sexuality and gender theologically. When that didn't work, he questioned my commitment to the community I was a part of. The community was my spiritual family. It was the only real place I had experienced faith. The idea of separating from this community felt unthinkable. But he coldly asked, why would you even want to be a part of this movement if you feel this way? Finally, when he couldn't convince me to back down from my conviction that the church I was called to lead would need to be fully inclusive of my LGBTQ brother, sister, siblings, the man looked at me directly and said, then you're going to have to decide if this is the hill you're willing to die on. Is this the hill you're willing to die on? What a strange, strange metaphor to reach for in that moment. Here's a Christian leader, a pastor of a huge church in our movement, the person who was tasked with selecting and training and mentoring a whole generation of future leaders. And he was telling me that to challenge him meant effectively I would choose to die on a hill. It wasn't lost on me that that meant 
that he and those who he represented were choosing to kill me. After a week of sobering pictures and words in my mind, his chosen metaphor wrong in a way that was clearly hidden to him. In that moment, I came to understand how it seemed to be hidden to all the leaders at the highest levels of this system he represented. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Scapegoating is most effective when it's hidden. These stories of Holy Week demonstrate a pattern that has sadly repeated itself through time immemorial and continues to dangerously play out in times of crisis even today. Lies infiltrate anxious groups with faulty logic, promising peace if others will pay the price. The lies gain power, spread like a disease, infecting even those who would be allies. And as the accusing force has its way, it keeps the injustice of the violence hidden from view. But as we end, I want to name that there's also a unique hope in these Holy Week stories. And that's the hope of what we're celebrating a week from today. Because Jesus, our faith testifies, is not like any other scapegoat. Jesus not only is innocent of the arbitrary thing he's accused of, he's completely innocent. And even more strangely, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Jesus doesn't stay dead. In Jesus, the scapegoat returns. For Gerard, this is the game changer. Finally, God gets to weigh in on this whole scapegoating endeavor once and for all. And God says, no. You humans may have pronounced this man guilty. You issued a verdict. I overturn it. I say no to your unjust killing. I am overturning this whole scapegoating system itself, and I am calling it for what it is. It is a farce. This is not justice. This is not what I called you to. This is what you have done through the ages. This is the result, humans, of your sin. Humans killed Jesus, not God. This was not what the divine required. And now God says, it's done. It is finished. The system of sacrifice is finished. Scapegoating is finished. It is founded on a lie and I won't let it stand. When Jesus rose, it was the ultimate vindication of the victim who was unjustly targeted. The scapegoat went from powerless to the most powerful of all. The power of the divine was there with him.
proclaiming the innocence of the one who was targeted, as well as the injustice that takes place every time a group reaches for a scapegoat to manage its own violence. The story makes clear this will never be, never, where God is found. Jesus becomes the scapegoat so he can stand with all of history's scapegoats and break open the facade of scapegoating itself. But he also comes to show the world another way to live. Hours before his arrest, as he was trying to prepare his friends for what was about to happen, according to John, Jesus told them this, then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. I believe this promise of Jesus demonstrates both how he was able to resist the infection of mimetic contagion and how he was empowering his followers to do the same. He was promising them that they could be filled with this same spirit of the divine that he was uniquely filled with, a spirit that he called parakaleo, the advocate. It's the word used of someone who speaks on behalf of a defendant in a court of law. The advocate stands up to the accuser. The advocate can recognize the accuser's lies and it can speak truth that dismantles the scapegoating work of the accuser by bringing what's hidden to light through the spirit of truth. The advocate empowers us to call out the lies when we see them proclaimed saying some should perish so that others have peace. It empowers us to resist mimetic contagion, not be swept up into the orbit of scapegoating. It calls us to amplify the voices of the scapegoats, to humanize them, to let their truth ring out so that oppression cannot hide behind a mask called justice. And whenever the prophets among us shine a spotlight on this diabolical process at work, whenever they show scapegoating for what it is, they are doing the work of the divine. Whoever they are, they are speaking with the voice of the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Amen? I believe it was the advocate who was present with me that whole momentous week in 2013, giving me hints of what was to come and connecting me with God's own self as it all went down. And when that powerful leader told me, I'd have to decide if this was the hill I was willing to die on, I believe it was that same advocate who gave me the words to respond with. Though my heart was broken, it was also hopeful, believing sincerely 
that Jesus, the resurrected scapegoat, was standing with me. As I told him, I am praying every day. If I'm in error, Jesus, show me the way. But all I sense is Jesus calling me forward. And so if that means dying on a hill, then I guess that's what that means. I may have been scapegoated. My dream of pastoring in that community of churches may have died, but those leaders did not have the final word. Amen? God has overturned their verdict. Haven, your existence, your birth, your growth, your thriving as a community against all odds, this is a powerful sign of resurrection. And this is the hope I leave you with as we enter this holy week. We will continue to see anxious systems join the accuser, his sneaky, contagious ways. But God stands with the scapegoats. God has become the scapegoat. And God makes a way for scapegoats to rise again. So may we all be filled with the voice of the advocate and share that hope in even the dark days that may come. Amen. Amen.